Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out about our organization at action22.org. Now, here are your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Making Action Happen. I'm Sarah Blackhurst. And I'm Brian McCain. Welcome back. It's been a little bit since we have visited with you. Of course, you know that we have been deep in it on the latest Colorado legislative session. Uh, Before we get started, I want to give a shout out to Adam Frisch. Adam Frisch is one of our most devoted listeners. Um, Every single episode, I don't ever think he's listening, but uh, every time uh, I talk to him, he asks me about the last episode that we did, and, and we're really flattered to have him as a fan of the show, and so I wanted to give a shout out to him. We, uh, we've we got, you know, one of our favorite humans uh, on the planet, Ed, Mike Beasley, back with us. This uh, We'll talk a little bit about the session, but I, I have to tell you that um, my, my fandom went up just a little bit for him, for uh, Mr. Beasley. I got to see him actually in action a couple times this session uh, in a way I hadn't really got to see him um, do his thing before, and it was uh, it was... You know, when you watch an orchestra and the conductor is there, or if it's a choir and there's the conductor with the orchestra, it's really quite impressive. And that's what uh, a lot what uh, Beasley looked like this session. And he helped us out with the academy and all the other things that were going on on top of what we were doing. So um, Beasley, welcome back um, to the show um, we, we love to have you, um, and for all the policy nerds out there that are fans of yours, um, this is the one that they look forward to, the post-session review. Um, how are you, did you get any rest after? That's the first question. Well, it's good to see you both, and I have caught up on some sleep. It was an extraordinary session. They're all unique. Um, what was unique about this was, um, how the first hundred or so days of session were dominated by um, uh, the majority party pursuing controversial policies around guns or reproductive rights. And then on the other side, the Republicans um, doing what I've never seen in 35 years, and that's going to extraordinary lengths to filibuster and, you know, to, to, take as much time to slow the process down to make it difficult uh, to pass bills. And so that meant that the last 20 days of session was very busy trying to deal with, um, you know, several hundred bills. Um, The legislature ended up introducing around 657 bills and they passed 513 of those. So, um, We talked about last session um, in the previous year of them passing eight out of 10 bills, and they passed 78% of the bills they introduced uh, this time. So it underscores how difficult it is to kill bills. For those of you uh, who are interested in why can't they just kill some bills, you know, uh, you could have a baseball bat and not kill most of this stuff and uh, from both political parties. And so um, it made um, it made the last several months um, more than interesting and, and frankly, um, 
very stressful. So almost from the beginning, because it was such a intense um, midterm election, and I think uh, we kind of forget how we quickly forget how that felt and went. Almost from the beginning, the energy was different. Um, why was that? Well, I think for a variety of reasons. Um, obviously, elections are hard fought. Um, uh, you know, we've had some conversations. There were several, there were at least eight or nine legislators who I described to some of them uh, when I communicated with them. They were kind of like the dog that caught the car. Um, they were the only person more surprised than I was at some of them, one, were, were them uh, <laughs> uh, first. And and then um, and a lot of them felt like, especially in the majority, they felt like they had these majorities, these mandates uh, to use these majorities to achieve. And some of them were frustrated with folks like me when I would say to them, look, you, you, you did, y'all did win. You have these uh, incredible majorities that Democrats have not seen since uh, the since statehood. Um, but Donald Trump had probably more to do with you getting elected or getting to these numbers than, than anything you campaigned on. And so that was a tension between um, legislators and from the lobby with them that Donald Trump being disliked by most Colorado voters does not necessarily translate into a mandate to do tax policy, growth policy, zoning policy, all of that in a way that we've never even never really considered in Colorado. So the some of the things that were said and that were brought up at the beginning of the session that that we were all reminded of at the end of the session, um, I mean, there was a, a degree of animosity that I don't know that we've ever seen before. We always kind of think about it and talk about it, but um, there was I was just um, shocked at some of the things that were said. Was that all media or was that really how it was? It was the media only scratched the surface, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. You have members in both political parties that occupy the ends of the political spectrum, uh, Republicans uh, on the right who, who um, you know, a handful of them, not all of them, but a handful of them that want to disrupt government, not just through filibustering in the legislative process, but they really are opposed to some of these institutions. Um, um, and, eight, and state agencies in this case, and then on, and, and don't really want to negotiate, don't want to talk about it. They just want to dismantle. And then on on the left, you know, we've got a very, especially in the House, a strong vein of almost um, Democrat socialists, kind of in the Bernie Sanders um, uh, mode uh, or model. That you know, why would we want to talk to outside groups? Why would we want to talk to? Uh, the members of the other party, we should just do what we want to do. And so that leads to a lot of tension in the process, right? Not just as you're filibustering those things I talked about a minute ago, abortion, guns, that type of stuff, but but just the nuts and bolts of, you know, the school finance act, the state budget, um, water policy, school finance, you know, election reform, you name it, they wanted to go to war over it on both ends of the spectrum. And that's exactly what happened. So we saw a lot of um, legislation really getting pushed off. Can you um, remind us, uh, especially because we, you know, we always need a, a civics reminder. Um, 
bills get introduced. Um, there, every legislator, and there's a hundred of them, get to introduce at the beginning or submit 500 bills or five bills each. So there's 500 bills submitted at the very beginning. Um, how do we get from 500 bills to s- over 700 bills being introduced in a session? So the state budget, um, we come in in first session, we do around 20 or so bills called supplementals for the budget, and then they do another 40 to 60 or so related to the budget. In this case, it starts on July 1. And so that adds another 100 or so. Uh, then you have bills from interim committees, audit, uh, audit committee, people who need a late bill. I have to admit I had a couple of those. Um, that did make it as part of the five um, uh, that a legislator could get on their own that were non-controversial, but just housekeeping. And so it ends up um, it ends up adding up. I mean, we've seen sessions closer. I've, been, I've lived through sessions close to, you know, eight, nine hundred, a thousand bills. So it's not, you know, it's not the end of the world. It just makes it really difficult when you're dealing with 300 of them in three weeks. Yeah. So we saw at the end of this session. Yeah. So there, so you get to the last, um, the last, what, 20 days of session or the last 18 days of session. Um, in those last few weeks, um, there were how many bills that were still, um, at the end? What let's call it 300. Let's call it 300. So let's say of the 120 day session, the last 20 days saw 300 of those bills, um, there, here was one of the things, and, and I'll tell you, and you know this already, but I'm going to just tell the listeners, um, this was my sixth session in this um, in this role as the president of Action 22. Um, and I testified on everything remotely this year, thanks to the help from Beasley, and um, that made it a whole lot easier. But I've never worked harder during a session. Um, <laughs> I've not ever testified on more, I've never testified on as many bills. We've never t- taken positions. We've never had to. I've never had to work as hard as we did this year on that. Um, that was pretty much the same for you too, wasn't it, Beasley? Um, I've never uh, worked this much, but a lot of it was chasing my own tail. You know, waiting for filibustering to end. You know, I, I think what filibustering did and the Democrats' commitment to getting their agenda through that first, let's call it 100 days, meant that we did floor work um, until three or four or five in the afternoon when we should have been done at noon. And then we start committees, you know, let's say three, four or five in the afternoon. And regular citizens are then forced to testify on things they care about at one or two in the morning. I find that completely unacceptable and offensive to, to the public. I get paid to be there. Um, and I'm still offended, but you know, it just, it, I get paid to be there, but there are folks that don't, that really care about a particular issue or a cause. And we, we made it very difficult for the public to participate in this process. Having said that, like in the house, for example, I thought Monica Duran, the house majority leader, I, I would say when we write the stories from the session was an absolute star in, in trying to, um, balance all of that out to cut deals with Republicans to move the the, the levers of the House on time and in a respectful way. And I, I thought she, in a difficult environment, did. I don't know that anyone could have done any better uh, than she did. 
um, uh, Rose Paglusi, Mike Lynch on the Republican side in the House, the leadership there from Colorado Springs and Weld County, uh, amazing legislators who did their best to, um, you know, try and and restore some decorum. Um, and it could have been worse, um, uh, this process, but uh, it was a challenge. So let's... Um Uh, One more thing on that. I wanted to say that uh, one of the things that I found frustrating along that line was um, I waited up um, and I was at home, but I waited up until I think I ended up testifying about 1230 one morning and um, Brian stayed up (laughs) to listen to the testimony. Um, But on the docket ahead of that was um, I think three or four different bills about license plate, like stegosaurus license plates and stuff. <laughs> I didn't understand why that was something that couldn't have been taken care of in, in February or March. Well, everything has to go through the process. You have to go through both houses and things stack up. We stack bills up in appropriations committee uh-huh. and then move those bills until the budget is done. Um, there are people like me who are trying to get the school finance act done ahead of the budget, the way it was done years ago. Um, so we're not literally doing the school finance act on day 119 of a 120 day session to allow school districts to plan, but we do need to reform, you know, the voters in Colorado reformed how we elect people, how we finance their campaigns. We've imposed term limits and a, a, a time limit on the legislature, but the legislature internally has not reformed itself. And they really need to do that because I, I felt like this was not um, consumer friendly, uh, for lack of a better term, on how citizens engage their citizen legislature. It was really rough on them. That's the perfect way to end that part of it. Um, so let's talk about the things that were most impactful. You know, Action 22 doesn't get involved with um, gun, and I'm glad that, you know, gun or reproductive, the things that we consider wedge issues because we think um, that the other the other stuff is going to be impactful, and those are the things that um, people don't know or don't understand and are paying attention to. So what do you think, um, the wedge issues aside, what do you think were the most impactful things addressed um, during this? And then give us a breakdown. Well, look, before we get into that, I think it's important to, to point out of those 78% of those bills that uh, did pass that, I would say close to 90% of those were passed in a bipartisan fashion, right? So it is a complete dysfunction. And it is, there are a lot of people working together across the aisle to get things done. And I think that's the Colorado way. And I think that your listeners need to know that. I think going into this session, we talked about a few things. Uh, We talked about uh, housing and you know, housing affordability. We talked about, um, I think I may, may have said directly, you know, if you, if, folk, if your listeners and our members of Action 22 are upset about that 10 cent of fee bag they started to pay on their grocery bags, wait till they get their property tax valuation. And, <laughs> and certainly um, oh, that. Um, we talked about the budget and we talked about um uh, school finance, uh, for the most part. And, you know, the governor came out strong in a state of the state speech, which typically, you know, governors use the state of the state speech to kind of drive the policy discussion. It isn't just what they want to do. It's what they want the legislature to do. And those right. are two different things. And he really spent a lot of time on housing. It was pretty shocking. Um, 
and not just on the housing bill, but we've got now we've got a green building code. We've got a a um, a wildfire um, a wildfire building code. And what we saw um, we saw a last minute attempt to kind of restructure um, uh, the CDOT uh, planning and transportation districts in a way that really hurt rural Colorado. And there was this basic theme on those particular issues of the, the local government is a problem and the state can fix it. And so I, I represent local governments. I represent you. Um, the growth bill that ultimately the governor endorsed and um, um, was introduced um, uh, was one of the worst land use bills I've ever seen. And remember, I used to run the Department of Local Affairs. This bill gave them broad, broad uh, rulemaking, regulatory authority over local governments on how we grow, where we grow, what we're going to put in those areas of growth. So, for example, a mandate to do accessory dwelling units, high density around transportation areas, um, um, uh, and if, if, for example, in those areas, if local governments didn't meet that requirement on their own, then the state would come in and impose their own will and their own authority in those particular areas and, and you know, among others. Um, one of the largest um, local control grabs that I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, the most significant land use bill that we've seen since the mid-70s. There, there was um, when you before you testified on the land use bill, somebody that was for it said, it, and it kind of shocked me. And you heard it, and I could see the faces in my head listening to it. But it was like, with all due respect, it's always Colorado's always been a local control state, and it hasn't worked, and it's time to get away from that. Like that was right. said in one of the hearings, and I was like, what the, you know what, like. Anyway, sorry, I just had to interject. There. Well, and, and so, you know, those kind of things, you know, was in, in the Action 22 footprint. I mean, there were one or two jurisdictions that were for it, but most all of them, even with this bill that didn't affect it like Trinidad, the bill didn't really affect them, but they were opposed to it because of the precedent um, setting nature of it. Yeah. Um, and um, to lose control of our communities like that, their identities, their ability to grow the way that meets their needs. Uh, didn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, the bill that came out of the Senate was filled with what, similar to what Governor Romer did in the in ninety three and ninety four timeframe when he when he created the Office of Smart Growth and he had a summit that discussed um, how do we want to grow and preserving open lands. That's how GoCo uh, came to, about. We know that that's a good example of you know people getting together. Let's incent people to plan. Let's incent them to build affordable or attainable housing. Let's incent them to talk about how to share revenue, uh, tax revenue, and and how to preserve open space. And man, there was none of that uh, in the House of Representatives. But there was there was a different approach led in a bipartisan fashion. Um, Senator Zenzinger from Arvada, Senator Kirkmeyer from Weld and uh, Weld County, and and um, at the end of the day, the House wouldn't accept it. Um, they took that bill restored all the preemption of local governments and then some and you know honestly um most um uh, most folks uh, oppose that um it did die in the senate on day 119 or that sunday night before the end of session because there really just wasn't consensus um on that approach you've heard the governor and others say that they want to bring it back 
and talk about those things. And I, I do think there's a, 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 um, there is a policy discussion to be had. And the folks that are in rural Colorado or the Action 22 footprint, you need to, you need, we need to pay attention. They need to pay attention. And they were lucky they had your voice of, you know, moderation to say maybe, you know, maybe we can do better. Maybe we should do some amendments to preserve local control. Um, boy, but you couldn't get consensus in the House on that. So that will come back in 2024. Um, really one of the most shocking bills I've seen in a long time. So there was I, I uh, my frustration and and as we're in the academy right now, the Action 22 Academy, um, we uh, are talking about um, bills and, and uh, titles, bill titles and, and all of that. Um, one of my biggest frustrations is, you know, what they say the intent of the bill is, what the, the proponents of the bill say the intent is, and then what the actual intent is. We're so, I don't remember it ever being so dramatically different um, in that it it was, we're going to, this bill's going to do this, you know, the intent of, and, and I'm going to, I'm going to pick on 291. The intent of 291 was to, um, either to stabilize the costs of um, for consumers on energy. That was absolutely not what that bill was about um, in any way, shape, or form. And and um, I think the the bill that I was the most angry, that was the, one of the bills that I was most angry about this session because of, of not only the way it was handled, the way it was put forward, and then sort of um, the tactics by which to, to pass this bill that was not at all what it it was originally set out to be um that did that was it my imagination did that happen more this session than it's happened in the past well look i mean i'm i'm not going to tell you it hasn't happened by both political parties in the past but we did see i think kind of a high watermark on that whether it was you know people are upset about their utility bills so we're gonna we're gonna stick it to utilities in terms of whether they can buy a table at a dinner or pay a lobbyist or what, you know, what was said in the press, it really was an attack on natural gas. Right. As introduced, it changed over time to be a bill that would allow, but only because folks like you came and testified and said, now, wait a minute. If you want to make things um, uh, um, reasonable for consumers, don't attack natural gas. Don't just automatically shift to electrification. Um, um, you know, um, let's do something reasonable on the growth bill. If you think Denver is growing great and Denver is a great place to live, then Senate, then, uh, that particular bill, that growth bill, then that, that was the bill for you. But I will argue strongly that if you change the zoning, um, of a house that's zoned for one single house and you're allowing greater density, you're allowing two or three units. Um, it, it, it blows the value of that house and that land up and makes it more expensive. There's nothing affordable about Denver. And Denver and Boulder, for example, should look in the mirror, in my opinion, why it's expensive to live in those communities. If you take land that's not worth much, you upzone it, well, then it's worth more. And they're going to then build houses that are, are newer and more expensive it helps drive inflation. It was just really offensive. And again, I don't filter it as government. Government doesn't always have the answer to every problem, but it might have a reasonable role. role. That bill didn't do that. Well, and, and there was the end. 
There was no honest discussion, in my opinion. Well, there wasn't time to have the honest discussion about mm-hmm. why exactly uh, housing is so expensive. Um, and affordability of housing um, for us and the Action 22 footprint are tied to the additional regulations. When I had a conversation with somebody who said they could no longer they were having trouble. They have a business, they had a paint store and the regulations made it so that um, they couldn't sell certain kinds of paint. And because they couldn't sell certain kinds of paint, um, they would have um, people go, they, you know, they come and they say, well, and I can't afford this kind of paint and it's not going to work for what we need it to do. So they would go out of state and then bring it back in. They would go to some other state and buy it and, and come back in and paint their house with it. It's those kinds of things that are making it, you know, housing is expensive. Every time you add a regulation, it adds expense. Um, and, you know, there was no, I didn't feel like there was an honest discussion on what really, and it's like no. the the um, energy issue, the utility issue. There was no honest discussion about what really is causing things to go up in price. Well, I, I, uh, I would say that it's not unusual, again, for legislators to try and put a spin on what their bill is doing to achieve their overall goal. And the beauty of this process is that folks like you and me and your listeners, um, even if it's two in the morning now, we, our job and our role and our duty is to go in and say, blow the whistle, you know, the baloney whistle, and say, this bill does X and um, uh, Y is acceptable, but X sure as hell isn't. And so you saw that in the energy side. You saw that in the housing bill. You saw some of that in the property tax bill. That's another one where when someone in the Denver media said, Do these, does the legislature think we're, and, and the governor think we're really that stupid? And I think that's probably a harsh criticism. But when folks read Prop HH, for example, because we're all worried about our, our, um, our property tax bills uh, based on this new value. Well, we, you know, the, the it was interesting. The people that supported Prop HH were the same, like Colorado Concern, or the same organizations that repealed the one protection we had in the law from escalating or skyrocketing property values. And now they're for this bill. And this bill is one, um, and, and folks will see it on the ballot unless the court challenges are successful, that says we want to take a little bit of your Tabor surplus that we're already required to give you, and we'd like to dedicate it to reducing the increase of your property tax. You're still going to pay more, but you're going to pay not as much uh, of that increase, and we're going to hold as a state harmless our schools and our local governments until we can Right. So if there isn't Senator Hansen, the, the sponsor of this bill, when Senator Kirkmeyer asked that question, and this is a big deal in rural Colorado, mm-hmm. you know, they're getting school um, special districts, cities, counties are getting a 65 percent backfill. And what happens when that revenue disappears? Well, that will be a belt tightening exercise for local governments. Now, normally I'm OK for losing weight. Right. But. Um, remember, I just described all of those unfunded mandates in these other bills. And I know I'm I'm having my Fox News moment right now. Do it. But it is frustrating for those of us who are for local control, like our board at Action 22 and others, to say you can't pile those unfunded mandates on us and then do something like this. I'm taking money out of this pocket that I already owe you, and I'm going to put it in this pocket, and you should be grateful. That's what the debate is going to be. Um, it should be an interesting yard sign um, because 
It is property tax relief, um, uh, Sarah and Brian. It is it is property tax increase relief, but you got to follow the weed down to the root, and we'll see what the voters say about that. Um, I, I don't know the answer. So unpack for those because. I'll, I'll tell you, I, I told you earlier that uh, the mo- most of the questions that I've gotten post, um, post-session post have been about the taxes because um, there was a whole lot in a very short amount of time. There was stuff that was literally up to the minute that was introduced mm-hmm. up to the minute deadline um, with one person testifying in committee just to get it through. The other person um, that was was supposed to testify um, pulled out because they said that they hadn't read the bill or they hadn't seen it. And, and it was, um, I understand why some people would be harsh and saying, do you really think we're this stupid? So can you unpack exactly what happened? Because I think people are, are, um, they don't under, they don't know what just happened. They just know a lot. They just saw that thing in the mail where it said your property, um, valuation increased like 50, 60%. Yeah, mine was one hundred and twenty thousand, um, and mine was um, over eighty-one thousand. And we have a little cottage in Rye, so um, yeah. And that's what they. And then what they're hearing is that they're having all these discussions, um, and it was at the last minute. And I, I tend to think that um, it was pushed to the last minute because they knew that the discussion would be had the moment that people were getting those valuation statements in the mail. Well, so look, you know, um, uh, I hope none of your listeners are driving and listening to this because they may <laughs> drive off the road and, and boredom. But I do think we've, you know, we've, the voters years ago, almost 35 years ago, 40 years ago, put the Gallagher Amendment named after um, Senator Dennis Gallagher that ratcheted down and controlled the the amount of money that you pay in your property taxes um, based on the value and tried to find a balance that 55% of that overall tax uh, burden was shared by business type properties and 45% by, by residential. That, that protection is now gone. And so now you're getting these large increases. And the legislature um, a couple of years ago knew that this was coming and we're in the middle of a temporary property tax reduction right now. We're in the second year, middle of the second year of a two-year reduction that, that the legislature just passed. And then they're using their own federal and their own general funds to backfill schools and uh, local governments. That's what we're in right now. And looking forward without that Gallagher protection and seeing that those values went up even more and that your property tax burden is even greater, um, again, without that Gallagher protection, um, the legislature had a decision to make. Should we extend what we've already done or should we go to the voters because we want to use some of the surplus that they're already guaranteed under the Constitution to help kind of help us pay for that? And that's really it's so complicated to explain, but that that's the way to do it. So what I would say is, is, you know, like we said back in December, hang on to your wallet because this is coming Mm -hmm. and it did. And I think um, when people start to get in the fall, the notice uh, from their mortgage company that their, their escrow is going to go up in anticipation of property tax increases. This is going to be a real 
heated debate. And I think, you know, it's possible that voters are just going to say, you know what, keep my Tabor refund. I just can't afford to pay this every month. Maybe that's what they're going to say. Or maybe if it's defeated, the legislature will come back in in November and December in a special session and just extend uh, for another couple of years what they've already done for the uh, the last couple of years. Um, Colorado, if there's been a hard way to do it related to tax policy, that's the path we've taken. Um, <laughs> whether it was the Gallagher Amendment or uh, to the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights in the early 90s, um, we've voters in Colorado have made this a mess and and now it's come home to roost. And so imagine being a local government in rural Colorado with not a large sales tax base, but a property tax base um, that needs to figure out how to budget, how to fill those roads, how to fund that jail, how to do those human services, sir, uh, um, uh, provide those human services that are needed um, without a stable property tax base, right? Not knowing what the voters are going to do, et cetera. Um, a school district that is promised 100% backfill, but whenever it comes time to balance the state budget, this legislatures, no matter who's in charge, cuts transportation first and then cuts K through 12 and requires higher ed to raise their tuition, right? No way to run a circus, but that's what we do in Colorado. And um, so we're we're going to talk about this more. That'll be my my May nineteenth forecast for you, similar to what we talked about back in December when we had this conversation. So um, I want to go back really quick um, on the Tabor um, part of it. So Tabor refunds. Um, this is this is pennies on the dollar when you're talking about what the increase is going to be as far as property taxes, um, for a couple of reasons. But one, talk a little bit about the Tabor, realistically, what a Tabor refund, you know, is going to be. Now, it used to be dependent on the amount of tax you paid, and now everybody's going to get the same um, regardless, I think. Um, but also, we're talking about maybe a couple hundred dollars when um, your annual tax bill is going to go up a, a good deal more than that. Um, well, so I would disconnect the two, okay. right? So you know your you know your property taxes are going to go up by uh, a lower percentage based on Prop HH. So I think it'll be six point seven percent versus seven point one. So even though your value increased, they're going to discount that value fifty thousand dollars, and then instead of seven point one, you're going to pay a six point seven percent of that increase. That makes sense? Okay. Welcome to the tax on Colorado. And so that still means you're going to pay more. And um, and they want to mitigate some of that input by now, instead of just doing what I described, they want to help back the local governments with some of your Tabor refund. So, and, and to help mitigate that impact. And, um, we should probably put that online or consider putting that online. So in case people want to click on it yes. or they can go to the um, Colorado.gov and go to the legislature and look at that website and there'll be a materials on there on the fiscal note that will help explain it in um, greater detail. Um, also your local County assessor will have information as well. I'm sure that can answer any questions that your listeners have. Um so um, so there, there is that policy that you need to consider. Um, and, um, 
And that will last for 10 years if the voters approve it. So that deals with property tax, but you're still allowed a, because of the Tabor Amendment passed in the early 90s, if you get revenue over a certain amount, you can grow at 6%. And anything above that needs to go, generically speaking, back to the taxpayers. Uh, We've not done that very often since Tabor's passed. Last year, the governor, um, I think he called it the Colorado. The Great Colorado Payback. Great Colorado Payback, which unfortunately I think confused voters because that that's a fancy way or a warm and fuzzy way of saying, here's the money we owed you anyway because that was in the Constitution, right? And so um, unfortunately, I think voters are going to be confused by that. And there is a companion bill to HH that if HH passes, there will be a $2.1 billion uh, Tabor refund Um if HH doesn't pass, I think the legislature just needs to go back and do what they've done, and that is give you your refund under Tabor, totally separate, and figure out how to give property tax relief, totally separate, instead of merging the two together, and, and I think the voters are going to be confused. Typically, when voters are confused, they just vote no. No, yeah. You know, and I, I've said to legislators, I said, I don't know what my dad's going to say when he reads the blue book. And then calls and yells at me about how confusing this is. But, you know, I will say that the governor's office and others tried to strike a balance so we could continue to have a budget, a state budget that funds the priorities that we care about, health care, public safety, transportation. And I do think that they tried and they had a very difficult tiny needle to thread here. Um, and we'll have to see how the voters respond. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about one of my favorite topics and I seem to be deeply involved in, although I don't know how that happened. Um, let's talk about energy and environment um, and all of the policies that came out this year with regard to that. So let me just say on the, in, in, um, the, the, the Senate Bill 291 we've already talked about, I'm going to remove that from this because that really wasn't driven. But what I see from my standpoint is um, the governor and the executive branch are, are, are doing what is already required by law. As you know, air quality bills, we've had several of those over the last few years that the ink is still drying on. And yet there are environmental groups that aren't just your traditional Sierra Club, Western Resource Advocates, but they're the fringy environmental groups that don't believe that Democrats who have these large majorities or a Democrat governor are doing enough on the environment. So they continue to in, introduce bills that are very difficult to amend that that even affect, like you described, that small business, that small dry cleaner with an air permit um, that really make it difficult in providing them certainty on what their business will look like and what their expenses will be. Not just in terms of the permits that they pay to pay for the regulation, but the constantly changing regulatory environment. It makes it difficult for those businesses, uh, whether in the public or private sector, whether it's um, uh, manufacturing or agriculture. You know, we need some certainty in this space, and these bills erode that confidence and constantly change, move that bar. When you think over the last three or four years, you've had a deal with the environmental community, with the executive branch of government, they move the bar again. Well, and the and, and the portion some of the most restrictive air quality bills in the country. Um, and so, um, and that and, and that debate has evolved. Remember that debate on air quality started with 
um, oil and gas. Mm-hmm. And lesser extent, mobile sources like cars. And now it's getting to the micro level, like I said, that little dry cleaner. Or a bakery um, or anybody. The part that yeah. was uh, particularly alarming to me on these on these bills, and it wasn't just this, it was uh, air quality bills. It was on several portions of it. The um, I'm going to call it the freedom to litigate. I would... I would like to put some other uglier words in there, but it's it's um, opening up small businesses to large businesses to tremendously crippling litigation, um, and it's in the bill that you can do that. Um, one of the provisions of the air quality bill that I think we're both talking about um, would say that regardless of the outcome, the complainant can receive um, from the respondent um, – it would be required that all of the legal fees that were um, that were acquired in in filing the complaint and to go through the litigation process would be on the respondent regardless of the outcome. To me, that is terrifying and alarming, and I wouldn't even I wouldn't even put myself in a situation. Um, to be under that kind of um, a mark, and it could be anybody, anybody at all, for any reason at all. If you don't like the way. Um, a smell was if you were walking your dog, but you couldn't quite put your finger on it. Um, and you're like, Oh, it must be coming from that dry cleaner. We're going to, we're going to sue this. Um, we're going to sue this dry cleaner into oblivion. Well, I'll, I'll just be honest. I mean, I, I think that's a way of saying it. I, I another way of saying it is, is that um, there are people in our state who for very justified reasons um, are upset about living next to like the Suncor refinery mm-hmm. or the Perina dog mill where, where my family literally grew up a block away from. Um, and that type of, um, uh, that type of emissions is stuff or emissions they want to control and frankly regulate out of existence. The problem is, is that, and the challenge for the proponents of those policies is, is where do they draw that line? And, and there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of reasonableness by the proponents of those bills. And I would argue one of the things I've suggested to some of my clients is that some of those in the environmental community, and some you can deal with and negotiate with, and you've met some of them, um, you, you, you know, we, we negotiate with them, and some you just can't. Yeah. And there is almost a, um, a mindset by some of those fringy groups that they don't, for example, I, I think they're anti-manufacturing. I don't think they want manufacturing in Colorado, and they're going to be mad uh, when they hear me say that, but I don't think they want manufacturing. And I don't mean just like manufacturing products with petroleum or with, you know, things made fueled by natural gas. I mean, they don't want manufacturing. They want you a gig worker economy where you're at home dressed like I am now, uh, working on the internet, with my power by wind and solar and they want it tomorrow. Right. And I'm not over, I don't, I'm trying to be respectful of their view and trying to describe it, but that's really what they want. It's what they're passionate about. And, and all of that comes with a cost. All of that creates a ripple effect. And even when those bills are changed and died, imagine being a manufacturer going to your lender and saying, I really love Colorado and I have land and I have workers who are educated and ready to go to work and I have water or whatever it is that I need to, to manufacture my product, but I have that regulatory uncertainty 
that makes it either difficult or more expensive to do business in Colorado. And that's what we need to come to terms with. And I want to give the governor credit um, for really trying to be the adult in the room and trying to have the executive branch kind of mitigate, negotiate, mediate, whatever words you want to use, the impacts of some of these bills. And, and as well as senators in both political parties, there really wasn't any negotiation in the House. It was all in the Senate. Yeah. Um, and 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 I we've been discussing these kind of bills like you just described for several years, and I'm confident we'll do it again next session. I think you're right, and um, that it makes it hard to plan or even to figure out how to, um, like you call it, the ink's not even dry yet on previous goals that are set or anything else that's happened because as soon as you do that or you get down the road or you're doing what you obligate are obligated to do or what you promise to do, um, we're going to change those regulations on you again. And so at some point, um, at some point you just, you, the trust is so eroded in doing, you know, everybody trying to do the right thing that it doesn't matter. It's not enough that the trust is so eroded that it break, it's going to break down the rest of um, any of those efforts. I, I explained it to my daughter cause she was actually kind of paying attention to it and good credit to her. Cause I'm, you know, listening to the calls and testifying and stuff. And she's like, what are you doing? Like you get paid to do this. This is boring. <laughs> but then she started listening to it more and I explained it to her on the environmental thing. And this is an example I gave her. I said, look, say it's Monday and I say you have to clean your room by Friday, right? And then Wednesday, we get to Wednesday and your room's not clean. I'm, I'm going to look at you and say like, well, you didn't clean your room. Your room's not clean. You're going to say, no, it'll be clean by Friday. I'm like, no, now you've got to go clean the kitchen too and your room by tomorrow. Yeah. And laid it out like that. And it kind of made sense to her. And it was kind of cool to see her listening more and asking questions about it because she, she's graduating next week and doesn't know what she wants to do. But her political beliefs are very young and you know, she's like, well, this is good. Like we don't want manufacturing here. We don't want like emissions here. This is a good thing. You know, I'm glad we have wolves in Colorado, that type of thing. And now she's starting to understand and follow that path, how it actually affects us. Um, going back to the cleaning your room thing with uncertainty with like, say a business investing in Pueblo or expanding. It's like now add your weekend plans on that. Like, you don't know if I'm going to tell you the, clean the whole house by Saturday now because I keep changing it. So how are you going to make plans for the weekend? And I said, that's why it's impacting these, these companies or industry that wants to come in and hire people and create these jobs and do this stuff. So it's, it's uh, um, nice to see somebody young paying attention, but at the same time, you know, I, I understand. And there is a manufacturer here in Pueblo that may not expand now after this session just because of what happened and the uncertainty and they're they're looking to pick up and move to texas and that's a lot of jobs here right now um and you can't really blame them at this point for wanting to do that so it's important to point out whether it's public or private sector whether it's agriculture or manufacturing i've never once been in a meeting where someone said look i just want to pollute um (laughs) Right. No one says that every Colorado is an environmentalist just because of where we are right today. But what they are saying is, can you just set the rules and let's follow them? 
and and not change them every few months when the legislature comes in. Yeah. And so, again, that's the adult role the governor has been playing in this policy. It's really important and it's going to change. Um, it's going to change. um it, 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 to the to the business in Pueblo, a client of mine is is actually moving investment out of Colorado as a result of some of this legislation, and I and I can't I I, I didn't discourage him because I can't tell him that it's going to get better. It's going to be a more stable um, political landscape. So, do you do you think that like going back to the land use bill? Um, do you think this can be an opportunity for some of the the local governments and rural communities in Action 22 to say, like, this is coming again. Why don't we all get together and kind of make a plan to say when this comes up again, like, look, we are doing we're making progress on this. We're kind of changing our ways to fit what you want to impose on us a little bit. Do you think that that it's there's an opportunity for that and maybe have the the state back off a little bit or the. What a great question. So I, I can't say enough for for the organized opposition to some of this growth and this erosion of local control. The Colorado Counties Incorporated, um, John Swartow, Colorado Municipal League and their leadership. Um, they did. a. have never seen them work closer together in all of the 35 years I've been around this process. And I do believe they're going to start having these uh, conversations um in, in a regional basis, just to educate people on um, on what um, on what we do as a state, what we've learned from our experience, um, and and you know, and, and that's why city CCI and CML put forward legislation or legislative language to say. Let, let's incent planning. Let's incent uh, intergovernmental agreements. Let's figure out a way to conserve water. Let's figure out a way to share cost of roads and other infrastructure and make development and housing less expensive. And boy, that was not the answer. The answer was the state will just come in and make you do it. So I do believe local governments and those who value local control are going to go into our communities and our backyards and have that conversation. I really do. Your point's um been heard and well taken by all of them. So let me ask you um, two things. Uh, go back really quick and what was accomplished on um, funding um, for uh, education funding? Because um, there were some important things that happened this year that I want to make sure people know about. And then uh, we'll do that first and then I'll ask you for um, some well, other information. I appreciate, especially the work in the Senate again, um, uh, the a historic funding for a new funding for schools. So I'm going to, it's not going to be totally correct, but uh, generally speaking, an average of anywhere around 980 to $1,020 more per kid of new uh, revenue on top of around 950 or so from the, in the fiscal year that we're in now. So we're finally starting to catch up. And uh, in terms of investing in our K through 12 system, when you look at, um, when you look at um, the, for those of you who've listened before, uh, the the money that we owe uh, over the last decade or so to schools and the budget stabilization factor or the negative factor, we're down to around 160 or so million dollars until that is done. 
and, and until that is paid off. And then that means the hole that's created in public in state investment in K through 12 is only $10.5 billion. <laughs> so the conversation next session will be to celebrate we've paid off that BS factor, that budget stabilization factor, and now let's rewrite the School Finance Act. And that's when um, rural districts and districts like um, 60 and 70 in Pueblo, for example, they're going to want to sit up. All your districts in El Paso County, they're going to want to sit up and pay attention to what does that mean? Because like you and I have experienced inflation and having how difficult it is to keep employees. Look at what school districts have had to do. They've had to actually give what I would describe a livable wage to first year teachers of 51 or, you know, $60,000 a year uh, starting salary for teachers, which I'm wholeheartedly for. Um, but we're going to have to figure out from a state how we're going to sustain that type of investment in our workforce. So we, because we're at risk of losing a generation of teachers, I would suggest, and I represent a couple of school districts. And, and we, have, we have a superintendent who drives a school bus in one of our rural districts, right? We need to do more. That will be a major conversation of the next session moving forward. But we did, we were successful in achieving great bipartisan support for more funding for schools at a record level. And I want to bring it back. Um, if you are not understanding what he's, uh, what, uh, Mike is talking about right now the BS factor, that budget stabilization factor. You need to go and Google that um, because he's right. Uh, he said it earlier in the show. Uh, every time we look at that, well, we cut transportation and we cut uh, education first in Colorado. Um, and recently I, I was having a discussion with my 25-year-old about um, you know, a political discussion. He's like, look, the most important thing that um, – that uh, government can do in his opinion is to focus on education. And he says, we fail over and over again to do that in Colorado fails over and over to do that until somebody, um, until somebody actually does something about it. I'm going to call that it's all BS. Um, they're full of crap until they actually do something about, they always say education, 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 and then they fail to do anything substantial about it. So I was excited to tell him that they're, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing at least, or, or a portion of what they're supposed to be doing on that. Cause that it really is a big deal. But if you want to understand that a little bit better, go and Google the budget stabilization factor that happens in Colorado. Cause it's an important part of Colorado fiscal policy and why we're 49th in the nation to fund um, higher ed in like 39th or something crazy yeah. for um for under that for k through 12 yeah. so um anything what else would really stood out to you or that we that the listeners need to be aware of with regard to the slash legislative session the things that um that we haven't talked about that are really going to impact them well i think um i i think um water policy and the drought generally speaking is probably that one last thing that we need to talk about and the focus wasn't you know necessarily on water in the platte river or the san luis valley uh or in the arkansas it was on the colorado river right. and i think you're going to see over the next 10 12 15 16 months a large concentration of state policy on what to do um, most people feel like yeah, most experts in the water uh, arena feel like that is a the Colorado River is a dying river, um, uh, and so you're gonna you're gonna read a lot, you're gonna hear a lot about what can not only Colorado do, but the downstream states related to the Colorado River. That's an important important part of our economy here in Colorado. 
And so we're going to be talking more about that. Uh, you're going to be, um, there's a case at the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court right now that um, uh, would affect the way uh, reservoirs are built. And we're already starting to see movement in um, the Department of Health that says that they want to do um, uh, regulation in this space without clear authority in case the Supreme Court rules back regulation and and, and uh, dredging fill operations. We're going to hear and see a lot about that. That's a big deal, mm -hmm. whether you're an agricultural producer in our rural parts of Action 22 or you're in El Paso County with, you know, uh, high density or high, you know, populations, that bill will affect every, that ruling and the Department of Health's response to that will have a big effect on all of our lives. And that's something we're going to uh, pay attention to and talk about in the months ahead. Well, when you want to, if you're going to see it at any time, the influence of my ancestors on uh, uh, the blood of my ancestors on how I act and react, it's going to be around water. That's this is going to be rough, folks, um, and I'm deeply worried about it. But this is this is where I really lose my mind is on the water issues um, for our state. I think uh, we're at a critical point in and the the trend in Colorado for Coloradans to be responsible or, you know, they're the responsible party for um, environmental and water, you know, woes around the, uh, the country and around the world. Um, that's, that's why I get very nervous about it because we've seen a trend that for whatever reason, Coloradans are supposed to fix everything. Um, the, and it's supposed to be on the backs of Coloradans to fix all these things that we have no influence on whatsoever. So yeah, I'm, I'm worried. I would, I would put it back to the individual that said local control doesn't work in Colorado and the state needs to come in and take over. Let's switch that to water. And could you imagine somebody from the fed saying, Hey, you know, state water rights don't really work. So the feds are going to take over because oh guaranteed the person that said that I know who it was. I'm not going to say any names, you know, has been very vocal on the fed staying out of our water business, but was saying the state needs to get in on local control. That'll be interesting. All right. So what good point, what good news do you have for us, Beasley? A happy we, story from the past yes, few months. Yes. Something that will make us feel better about all of this. So here's what I would say, um, and to 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 your to your listeners, to the members of Action 22, what I would say is is that Action 22 has never been more influential than they are today, at least in the state legislative policy arena, and it's because we have been uh, under your leadership and the board, um, uh, we've been an effective, um, uh, straightforward. Uh, broker of conversation and information so we can start to restore in this state um, um, how we can all agree on what facts are and, uh, that relate to the various policies that we've talked about, housing, uh, budget, property tax, school finance, water, you name it, environmental policy. Um, we play an important role in that and I, in it, we really hit a high watermark in the session on that, especially on growth, on property taxes, um, and just really kind of pulling, you know, the executive branch, the legislature, the public and private sectors together. Action 22 played a really important role in some of these key bills on that, and I commend you for it. Uh, and I think that Action 22 has a strong voice, 
um, and your members um, can make it even stronger uh, by participating and, and, and helping out, asking questions and treating people decent, uh, decently. And um, this is the greatest state uh, in, the, in the country. I think we can all agree on that. And as you've heard me say in the past, my favorite Winston Churchill quote, um, you know, he could always count on America to do the right thing, but only after they did everything <laughs> else first. The same thing can be said about the Colorado legislature. We will get there. If it was easy, it would be boring. And um, I appreciate your uh, civic engagement and, and the contributions that Action 22 has made. Mike, thank you so much for saying that. And the truth of the matter is it's um, a, a tremendous team and you're, um, you're quarterback a lot on that. And we would not be able, absolutely would not be able to do this um, without you. There's no way that we could um, have that, that level of influence that you talked about if, it, if you weren't um, on our team. And we appreciate you more than we ever are able to tell you um, fully in ex- fully explaining and, uh, Boy, you've been a wonderful mentor um, to me in all of this, and I appreciate you um, so, so much. I really genuinely do. I, I tried to stop Sarah from calling you so much. I'm like, just let, he's busy. He's busy. Don't call him. Let's think about this first. We'll figure it out. So, but you, you help <laughs> us out on everything above and beyond, and we appreciate it so much. Yeah, you're always um, one of my first calls. It's my honor. We're all in it together. We'll figure it out. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for joining us for this episode of Making Action Happen with uh, our good friend Mike Beasley um, and all of our love for Colorado. Um, Chad Vorthman, I know you're listening. Um, I would like uh, a full report on uh, what's happening in the skies and, and if, you, uh, if you are going to um, consider the skies sacred um, from now on. Um, anything else? The views and opinions expressed on Making Action Happen do not necessarily reflect the policy or views of the Action 22 board or its membership. All right. That's the proviso. Um, We have a lot of interesting things coming up this summer. Um, We'll keep you informed on those. I think the thing that we're most uh, proud of um, and we've uh, beyond our expectations are the Action 22 Academy. We have an amazing group of fellows um, in this uh, particular group. um, And it's this uh, professional uh, fellowship that we've been working on for a little while. Um, for more information, go to our website at www.action22.org. And just to uh, keep everybody updated, we've been kind of hit or miss on these shows just because we've been so busy, but I have a guest coming up in the next week or so. Um, Tommy with Clasp Life. He's the one-armed skydiver, if you've ever met <gasps> oh, him. Yeah. Um, he's going to come on and tell his story. Uh, I think he has a book coming out because it's an incredible journey from where he started to where he is now. He keeps trying to get me to go skydiving, but he lost his arm in a skydiving accident. And I'm like, um, no, eh, maybe I'll wait on that. But no, he, you don't but it, amazing story. So he's going to be on and we have a couple legislators coming on as well to we talk do. about their experience. We do. Um, some of these new legislators, they can talk to us, um, Ty Winter and uh, Matt Martinez, yep. about what it was to go through this for the first time. Um, so we have a lot of great shows coming up for you. Um, and if in the meantime, there's uh, somebody that you would like to nominate to be on our show, just email us at show at action22.org. And that's it. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain for another edition of the show next Thursday at 1 p.m. Mountain Time, 
12 noon Pacific Time, and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.